0: You are listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark. And this show is different from most of the others I've done. My guest is Scott Dickers. He's not a musician. He's a writer, comedian, podcaster, and co-founder of The Onion. He jumps on the podcast to talk with me about creativity. He discusses his early influences like The Muppets and Jay Leno, how he gets inspiration from bad comedy and how he got to start writing the comic Jim's Journal all the way to writing a New York Times bestseller that was self-published. Scott goes into some great stories about starting The Onion, how it was named, favorite and least favorite moments, and expanding The Onion's reach simply due to the desire to be literally everywhere. Scott also talks about leaving The Onion, how he's writing books about comedy that actually go step-by-step through the entire process, and creating a podcast that is just as helpful. And finally, we wrap up with what he's working on now. Follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Dickers and on Instagram at It's Scott Dickers. Check out his YouTube page and his website, scottdickers.com. He's very approachable. Follow us at Performance ANX on the socials and support the show with merch at performanceanx.threadless.com or with a coffee at ko-fi.com slash anxiety. Now get ready for a fascinating journey in comedy with Scott Dickers of The Onion on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
1: Yeah, that's the way to do it. This is Scott Dickers of Scott Dickers Around. Listen to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. It's fun and funny. Yeah, almost. Uh, I was trying to sound like a 1930s radio announcer.
0: I thank you for joining me. This is uh this is really a thrill. I it's it's I've been listening to the podcast. I actually what I like to do is to do uh as much research as I can on a sub, on a guest and uh go listen to some old interviews, see what you what you've got on YouTube and all and while I was doing my research, I I looked some of your stuff up on YouTube. And when I did, I found a video of this of somebody giving themselves a face tattoo. And <laughs> i watched that instead of doing research and uh i see that you don't have a face tattoo so i was That's wondering if not this, me it, okay so it was, so there won't be a follow-up video to that <laughs> no okay no nope. it was a weird rabbit hole i went down like scott dickers and then man gives face man gives himself face tattoo
1: yeah this is the problem and one of the problems of technology is that You'd think it would be very convenient. You would go right in and get your answers. Like on Star Trek, they say, computer, yes. give me the, the five concertos from Bach or whatever. No, the computer would be. But first, do you want to see this awesome <laughs> video of a guy tattooing his own face? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They didn't, they didn't tell us that would be part of the equation.
0: Roddenberry kept that to himself. Yes. He, he knew he, it all. He did. He just didn't tell us. Exactly. He, that's how he gets it. If they know that they're going to be looking and going down, self- Tat- Self face self-tattooing rabbit holes. They're not going to want to do this. Although, I mean, it was quite entertaining, so well, maybe good. you should have let us know.
1: Glad you enjoyed that.
0: <laughs> what I like to find out is how you got to kind of to where you are. It's, I like to hear behind-the-scenes stories, strange things of, of how you got to this interesting place that you're at right now. What was your first exposure to comedy? Because you are known as a comedian. I mean, between co-founding The Onion, stand-up, voice acting, writing, podcasts, your career has been in comedy. What really lit that spark for
1: you? Yeah. Well, when I was in high school, I really thought I was going to be a performer and I thought I was going to, you know, I really wanted to be on SNL. You know, that was kind of my dream. And then I, I got out of the house and I realized that it would take a lot of skills that I don't have to get to that point. <laughs> like you you have to gladhand, you have to go to parties, you have to meet people, you have to go to parties with people, you have to be a real extroverted person. I'm the opposite of that. I'm virtually a recluse. Oh wow. So naturally I went into doing a comic strip because you're sitting at alone at home for that and voice work. You're alone in a recording studio. Yes. You say hello to the ad executive and the engineer before you go into the studio, but you're there in a dark little room. Okay. And those are the things that were comfortable with me. And then that led to the onion where I'm sequestered in a little office where I'm the editor and I rarely emerge. (laughs) And so I got used to doing all of this behind the scenes comedy and 20, 30 years went by and realized (laughs) that. that I'd I had really been playing into my strengths and wanted a challenge. So, yes, lately I've been doing more of the putting myself in front of the camera, getting on stage more, and all that kind of thing. But the first inkling I had of comedy was writing. So when I was four, my dad brought home scrap paper from his office, and I wrote a book called Riddles and Jokes, when I was like four years old oh, and awesome. drew little pictures and made up little jokes. Why did the skeleton cross the road? <laughs> um, because it wanted to, you know, really <laughs> funny, really high quality jokes. <laughs> and I stapled that together. You no, know, it, it was excellent. You no, know, I, I actually was looking at it the other day. Um, cause I posted it just for fun. Oh, wow. Posted a page of it. And one of the jokes Um, now I'm not going to remember. It's going to be pretty lame, but one of the jokes is like a meta joke. It was about a chicken crossing the road, but it was like a meta in that it was like playing on the expectations of what you expect from that joke. And I was like, okay, that's pretty good for a four year old. (laughs) I was already thinking about like, you know, oh, well that joke is a cliche. I must play off that cliche. I can't just do the joke. And so you know, I got a really good reaction from that book, and then I would make other books. I would get those little spiral bound notebooks at the Ben Franklin, and I would make a book out of it. It's already bound, it's just blank pages, so you could just make a book and I drew little pictures and made little jokes, and that was a cottage industry for me for my first i don't know like five or ten years and It was kind of how I communicated with the outside world. I didn't really have friends that I hung out with. I didn't do sports. You know, I didn't really have any extracurricular activities. I was a real loner. And, you know, making things was how I connected with other people. So it it was really kind of a necessity that I I do comedy, because if it weren't for that, I would just be, I don't know, a serial killer or... (laughs) you know, a, a homeless vagrant or something.
0: <laughs> well, How did you start with comedy? I know with, with a lot of comedians, a lot of writers who write jokes, comedy is a defense mechanism. You know, they're, yeah, they're, it they're doing it to get out of fights or to be the peacemaker at home or something. Yeah. was there something that triggered it for you or was it something that was that just developed as, as just out of the blue?
1: Yeah, for me, I think it was just a result of the fact that I was so insecure and shy and didn't really know how to relate to other people. And I discovered this method of relating to them where I could just write something down and give it to them and they would laugh and like me. (laughs) And that was pretty magical. So yeah, it wasn't a situation where I had to be the peacemaker or I had to make my parents, one of my depressed parents laugh, or I had to jockey for position with my siblings It was nothing like that. It was just, I think it was just a factor of my personality being so like, I, I, I can barely see beyond my own face. I'm just, like always living in my head. And so, but I'm still a human being and human beings need some sort of social community interaction. That's part of what makes us human. And that, that was my only way to get it. So it was almost like a, a survival, like a literally a survival strategy for existing in, in human society.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Was there any comedian in particular that did really struck you that really kind of helped fuel that fire that you had created?
1: Early well, I on certainly, yeah, I liked a lot, a lot of comedians early on. I think one of the earliest I saw uh, were the people on Sesame street. You know, I thought the, the Muppets were really funny and they were really yeah. good. And that really had a big effect on me. They, they structured their little bits, you know, even though they're educational, they structured them like comedic bits and they really had a sense of sort of old time, almost Borscht belt, like showmanship where it was like, yeah, da, 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 yes. with this, like, <laughs> you know, punchlines and all this other stuff. And I think, you know, they're literally teaching me the ABCs, but they're also teaching me the ABCs of comedy structure. So I totally get that from Sesame Street.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com performanceanxiety. That's BetterHelp.com slash Performance Anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast.
1: And then I watched, you know, Gilligan's Island had a big influence on me, I think. Okay. That was a really silly show that was in reruns around that time. Yeah. And then when I got to high school, we're talking about, you know, the movie Airplane. We're we're talking about Woody Allen and Steve Martin and Andy Kaufman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Later on, we're talking about David Letterman and Jay Leno, who would be a frequent guest on Dave Letterman's show. And he would just kill every time he went on the show. He was so funny and just seemed like he had a never-ending stream of hilarious observations every time he came back on the show. So confident, like so on the ball. And... What a consummate professional. Like, and I now know having read up on, on the history of that a little bit, that he's always been the comedian's comedian and he was always the guy on the road that everyone else would look up to and he would give advice and stuff. And when he got the tonight show, I know I'm off on a tangent. No, I love that. If (laughs) if you'll allow me. Yeah, Yeah. When he got the tonight show and started doing jokes for old people, everybody was like, ah, Jay Leno's lame. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it he is so professional. He knows who his audience is when he's on Letterman. He's, he's performing for high college students. And I got everything I wanted f- from Jay Leno when he was on the David Letterman show. Yeah. But when he's on the tonight show, he knows he's got like the over 50, over 60, uh, couple in bed in, in uh, suburbia or in right. small town America. Okay. So he's going to tailor his jokes for them. And yeah, just what an impressive guy, impressive, um, career. So I think That's he influenced point. me. Yeah. He influenced me a lot more than I realized at the time. The people who I thought were influencing me mostly were Steve Martin and obviously okay. SNL, you know, started up when I was in junior high school okay. and that was a big inspiration. SCTV.
0: Oh yeah. was I big.
1: SCTV. And then the British imports, you know, Monty Python yeah. was, uh, the Rosetta stone of comedy as far as I was concerned. And there were some other really good import shows, like um, the Rise and Fall of Reginald Perrin. That was a big influence. Oh
0: wow! Not, I have to check that. I don't have
1: if Not a lot of people know that show. It's Leonard Rossiter, and uh, it's just a wonderful little show about character. Like you learn so much about character uh, work uh, with that show. Beautiful piece of work. I think it ran for maybe three, three or four seasons. But they ran them all on PBS. You know, you could get all this stuff oh, in yeah. the states. Yeah, yeah. Like, faulty so, Towers. And remember the Young Ones. Yeah. Faulty Towers, uh, was just a masterwork yes. there. There was so much good stuff. And yeah, as far as Woody Allen, like I, I absorbed his movies and read his books and I watched every stand up comic I, I could get my hands on, you know, and then, you know, obviously no YouTube. So you're catching them when you can catch them on, uh, the late night talk shows was pretty much it. Right. And yeah. I saw Rodney Dangerfield when he came through town, and I saw—I oh, nice. definitely saw Jay Leno. I had tickets to see Andy Kaufman, but then he did that stunt with Jerry Lawler where he broke his neck, and he canceled the show. Oh. <laughs> I didn't get to see him. Oh man! But yeah, a lot—a lot of influences. I will say this: I think my biggest influence—and I should say Mad Magazine in terms of like print comedy—was a big influence. Okay. The National Lampoon didn't really speak to me. I think I was a little bit too young for that. But a lot of the comedy that inspired me was comedy that was bad. So like the popular sitcoms of the era, like three's company and things like that. Or, I mean, I guess that was mainly it. maybe like popular romantic comedies or mainstream comedy movies, Mm -hmm. you know, that weren't Mel Brooks or the jerk or airplane, but just like the standard kind of movies, with George Siegel in them. And I would see stuff like that. And that stuff would really inspire me or cracked magazine was another one. Yeah. Really bad comedy inspires me because I look at it as a kid. I'm like in high school and I look at that, and I'm like, well, I could do better than that. And that really, that lights a fire under me and makes me really want to do something, you know, and put it out there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: It's that young to be thinking that, that I can, I can do better than these guys. And they've
1: actually made this stuff. That was the thing. They're successful. Like I didn't understand at the time, all the other factors that go into being a success. Yeah. But looking at it, it was just like, well, the barrier to entry can't be that bad. If, if this is what's out there, you know? <laughs> You know, I, I could write an episode of Three's company in my sleep. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And, and this is these these guys are getting paid top dollar. These are like the top professionals in the industry. Yeah. So I, I can do this. And and it really did um inspire me.
0: Now you Scott started with comics. Was that a, a, Yeah. I guess is that the career you thought of first was comedy always a career goal for you or was it just something you kind of at one point realized i can actually make a living at this
1: no i never realized that i I was horrified by the possibility (laughs) of trying to make a living it was really just like what else am i going to do i don't care about anything else i don't want to do anything else so i must figure out how to do this oh wow And I thought I was going to make movies. I I made a bunch of super eight movies and I transferred to, I actually, I barely passed out. I like flunked out of high school. So I, I didn't go back for my diploma and I had to take a special test to get into college a couple years later. Oh, wow. And enrollment was low in those days. So you could take a little test. It wasn't a GED, but it was some kind of test where you didn't, they, you didn't have to send your high school records if you could just pass this test. Okay. And it was like simple grammar rules and some other things. And so I passed it. And anyway, my goal was to get to the University of Southern California Film School because I wanted to make movies. I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. Okay. And I quickly realized that that's incredibly expensive to make movies. So <laughs> I, I turned to comic strips because they're the cheapest. So okay. pen and paper. And I, I knew you know, I've been reading the comics page and I figured that can't be that hard. Like there, there's a lot to inspire me there. A lot, a <laughs> lot of bad work, right. you know, a lot of bad work like Garfield, you know, oh okay, yeah, it, it's not never funny. It's never been funny. And it's the most popular comic strip in the world. I literally don't get it. I, yeah. Lasagna uh, and I just, Mondays. That's about it. I don't understand. But so I would look at the comics page and Garfield is one of those comics that I didn't want to read it, but it's so easy to read. It's like you, your eyes pass by it. and It's like, oh, shit, I read it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I figured if he can do it, I can do it. So I started coming up with a bunch of comic strip ideas, and I would send them away to the syndicates, and then I would get a rejection letter back, and then I would come up with a different idea, send it in. I did that for years and years. And finally, set my sights really low, got a comic strip published in a college newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin, where I lived at the time. Okay. And cool. it caught on. It became really popular. And I sold t-shirts with the characters on them. I syndicated it to other newspapers. Oh, wow. And I, put a, I self-published a book collection of the comics that you know, I hand-delivered to bookstores Paid for the printing myself. Jeez. And that book made the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> that's that's incredible. No, it really was just amazing. The, the comic strip was very popular. And because I, I kind of knew, like, by studying other comics, I knew what the goal of a comic strip was. I knew what the expectations of this medium were. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I could meet them and exceed them in a way that other comic strips weren't doing. I could make a better comic strip. So it was a really fun challenge and it, it made me feel really good. It was like a little boost to my ego that I could do this, you know, okay. and along that same time is when I was getting into voice work. So I was kind of doing those things concurrently. And then I, that's when I started making a living was by doing okay. those two things. Yeah. With the,
0: with the comic, were you drawing beforehand or was that something that you said, well, this is, these comics are so basic. I can draw this too.
1: Yeah. So I've been drawing my whole life and I thought I was pretty good. Okay. I I didn't think I was great or anything, but like I could, I could be a passable cartoonist, (laughs) but the comic strip that I settled on was this comic strip called Jim's journal, which was a stick figure guy that just told you what he did every day. So every comic was like a journal entry. Okay. And it was really simple to draw. And I knew the important thing in a comic was the writing. I knew the drawing was very secondary. So the drawing was cute enough, you know, it worked. They were lovable characters. I knew to make them, you know, th- three heads tall and all this. Stuff. There's like mechanics that go into how you make a character lovable. Okay. And I, you know, I had studied this stuff, so I, I knew how to do it. And it was really just, it was very, it was very calculated looking back on it. Like I, I really approached it scientifically about how to make a popular comic strip. Wow. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, yeah. No, it worked. It, it was really, um... Uh, I lucked out there. I mean, you could call it luck, but I, if that strip had not worked, I would have kept trying. I would have right. kept making a new strip until one of them hit. It just happened to be the one that hit. So you
0: seem to have done just about every conceivable type of comedy. I mean, th- there's the comics, yeah, there's stand-up, I, so, there's writing for The Onion,
1: editing. If, I did radio drama for, yeah. <laughs> for years. I, I produced wow. skits on National Public Radio and yeah. I, I, one thing I haven't done a lot of is like, um, the stage, you know, yes, stand up and lecture circuit, but not a lot of like perform like plays or sketches on stage. I, you know, I took some improv classes and stuff, but yeah, I just, I love it. I love doing it and I want, I just want to do it all. So you, you, can you blame me? Like, I just no. want to, I want to do everything, you know? So how did you get started with
0: the onion? How did, how did you meet those guys? And, and I know you you're a co-founder, but I was trying to get the story of, of how the whole thing kind of came about.
1: Yeah. So it came about because one of these two business guys who started it, who you mentioned, Tim Keck, he produced this 11 by 17 sheet of paper that had a calendar printed on it. And he wanted to put little cartoons around it and sell some ads and make a little money. And he distributed that to college students. So he got a cartoonist friend of mine to do it and they each made like $200. So he was going to do it again and he was going to do it with my comic strip. And then he decided not to do that. He instead was like, well, why don't we just make a newspaper? We'll just do it every week. And he wanted me involved in that uh, project and I was excited because I thought it was going to be like a humor magazine, a a humor publication like mad or the lampoon or something like that. Or at that time, spy magazine was the big humor magazine that was really killing it. Brilliant, brilliant magazine. And so I just jumped in with them and, and helped them start it up and helped them come up with jokes. And then about a year into it, those two guys left and sold it to me And two other guys, one of whom we bought out. And then from there, like I I put together a staff and, you know, at first had to do a lot of the work myself, but it was, was, my comic strip was stick figures. So I didn't really have a lot of uh, of other work to do. So I spent all my time hanging out at the onion office and just doing it for fun anyway, man. Yeah.
0: And is it true that it was named after a sandwich
1: so that is sort of true. So the other guy, Chris, used to eat raw onion on a piece of untoasted white bread for breakfast. That's so gross. No, it was gross. I was over there one time and he was making this sandwich and um you know <laughs> Uh, I guess his uncle came over one time when they were thinking about the publication and smelled all the onions in the air. And he's like, why don't you call it the onion? And it just sort of stuck. It was going to be called the rag. That was the name that it was sort of our working title in the beginning. The rag just, okay. ended up uh not sitting really good with us so yeah I, onion great name i love the name Onion. this great name for a newspaper it, it's amazing it's it and it yeah. fits it really it, does fit it, it somehow, somehow fits yeah it, <laughs> yeah and we didn't we didn't know what the onion was uh, was going to be at that time so it is pretty lucky that it fit
0: how long were you with the Onion? i mean was it 20 30 years something like that
1: some ungodly number of years. Yeah. So <laughs> I left for the final time. I often would take little hiatuses, Hiatus, is that how you say it? And it is now. It is now. So I would take a year or two off here and there, but on and off, I was there from the beginning in 88 until about 2014. So that's a good 35 years, wow. isn't it? Something, yeah, like, that. something no, like that. No, no, uh, 25, sorry. 25 years or so. Jeez. So Yeah. It's a, it's a big chunk of my, uh, my youth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I know you've you've been asked this a lot. So, but I've, I've got to ask it because hopefully the same people aren't listening to my podcast that have listened to all the others. Do you have a a favorite and maybe a least favorite moment at the end? Like something that just blew up beyond your expectations and then something that is just so cringy kind of wish you could take it back.
1: Oh, there's so many worst (laughs) moments. Like uh, it would be hard to to pick one worst moment because really it's like doing something like that is an exercise in forgetting all the worst moments so you can look back and still be happy. (laughs) You know, people who had mental breakdowns in the office and, you know, people who were were fired after a screaming match, you know, like really unpleasant stuff. But if you're thinking about just the work, Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, there, there, there are a couple of pieces that we ran, but I don't think of those as like bad or mistakes. I look back and like, we were learning how to do it. So of course our, our stories aren't going to be as good in the beginning. You know, what helps me is to go back and look at the, the stuff that's still pretty good, even though it was really early. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's a lot of that. Well, so like the American voices feature, which is the people on the street it's like okay uh, yeah. six people on the street who all have an opinion about some current event so we started doing that in issue one and oh, wow i had this idea of, wouldn't it be funny if we just use the same people every week <laughs> it would be a funny statement about how the media doesn't really care what regular people think and right uh, and so we started using the same people and then people started liking that gag. It was a recurring gag and they were like college students. And then in about the mid nineties, we pivoted and made it more like a a big city newspaper. And so we changed the people and we got adults and they're the same adults now. So they've been there for a good, you know, 25, 30 years, those same people. And so that's, that's a highlight. Like that's a, that's a really fun, that's a really fun achievement.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and loved them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was Jailbird. The design I chose was Jailbird we might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com.
1: And so another highlight is kind of obscure. The, the, uh, videos that we started doing in the mid two thousands, we did a lot of web video, and we kept doing those into the mid-teens. And we did one that was based on the editorial cartoonist at The Onion, Stan Kelly, okay. who is not real, Real, he's a fake person. <laughs> and there's a brilliant cartoonist by the name of Ward Sutton who does the comic strip, and I worked with him to create this comic strip that would be a parody of an editorial comic strip. okay. And he's just done a brilliant job of perpetuating this guy who has terrible, crazy opinions. And, you know, he's a bitter old man who hates everything. And we did a series of videos where he analyzes his cartoons and why he draws them the way he draws them. And they're called Behind the Pen. And we we only did like six of them, but I got to voice him. And we had so much fun. It was just like riffing as that character... Uh, and he would, he would get so angry he was just so <laughs> furious at, at his editor and how unappreciated he was and you could just hear the bitterness um, I, if I had it at my fingertips I'd play you one of those videos they're all on YouTube it's, it's called Behind the Pen
0: I am Stan Kelly and we're going to jump right to tips for young artists here. Yeah, because look at that villain take a look at how I draw that villain you want to draw a real bad guy, a real bad guy like this, this lowlife here. How do you do that? Simple, no sleeves, see? He's got no sleeves, and that's how you do it. It's that simple. I'll give you another tip here on title construction. There's a fine art to choosing the perfect title for a cartoon. Now, sometimes you take a little common phrase like the three R's, see? And you give it a little twist. Humor comes in threes, see? So you take these three things, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but then you switch the last one. What's the last one there? Robbery. See, it's a switch on what you expect. That's an advanced technique in wordplay, and I call it the old switcheroo. It's never failed me. The old switcheroo.
1: And so that those are real highlights. Those, those are great. The onions seem to
0: really embrace that kind of thing. It, it going into multimedia was that something that right. you guys
1: anticipated being well, big, or was, was it just luck, uh, more luck? that was a function of me just being unrestrained in my ambitions so <laughs> we came out with a newspaper and then pretty early on within the first 10 years we were doing a comedy cd uh, a tv pilot and a book and as soon as you could do well, even before podcasting, we were doing a little radio show that we sent around to radio stations. I just wanted to be everywhere. Cause I, I figured, Hey, this is my shot. Like, you know, I want to get it out there. I want to do all the di- different types of comedy. Yeah. And so the only thing we didn't ever do was a stage play, but we were talking about, it. we were talking to second city about putting on <laughs> a stage play, like a, a, <laughs> an onion musical. Oh man. That would have been crazy. But yeah, yeah. It was just a matter of getting everywhere. And as soon as the bandwidth was available to do audio online, we were doing a podcast. As soon as there was bandwidth to do video, we were doing video clips and then, you know, making shows for Amazon or, you know, whoever would make shows with us. And then we we made a couple of deals to do shows for a couple of cable networks. And so, yeah, it was just a, a ma- even going online from having a paper and then going to the internet, there were no humor websites. Like we, we just went online. We were the first humor website. Wow. And that really helped us. And it was really just a matter of, Oh, another way to distribute our humor. Yes. Let's do it. Let's take it. And so that became a real cottage industry for us. And that was kind of my job as the editor in chief was to, you know, seek out those new worlds and boldly go into each of them and figure out how to translate the onion into a different media. You know, that sounds like a dream job. Oh, it was so much fun. Yeah. I loved every second of it, <laughs> like doing the the radio show. And then the podcast was so fun. Cause we, we hired a really square sounding AM news guy to do the, the stories. <laughs> and the, each little bit was like a one minute bit. Uh, and it would be like a headline and a, a little bit of the story, just like a news brief. Okay. And, it was packaged perfectly for radio and it sounded so real. It really sounded like the actual news. Yeah. Just really fun, really fun doing all that. And then all the videos we did where we made them look like real, like the onion had all these 24 hour cable news networks. And we were just grabbing clips and putting them online when really we were spending like 25 grand on each one of these three minute clips just to make it look real, you know? Wow. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun.
0: And you've, Reaped the rewards. I mean, like you said, you've, your book was a New York Times bestseller. As a self-published book, you've won Peabody's, Webby's. You've even won a Thurber Award, and you're still alive. Yeah,
1: they don't often recognize uh, comedians in their time. I think that's changing a little bit. But yeah, I was surprised when we got the Thurber Prize. I think I was under thirty, or I was thirty, thirty-five, something like that. Yeah. Like that's really young to get the the to get a, a prestigious award like that.
0: Oh yeah. At what point did you decide it was
1: time to leave? Well, like I said, I took a lot of hiatus and so (laughs) I I left a lot. And for whatever reason it would always be one thing or another that would bring me back. And usually the onion would be, they would feel like they were in some kind of rut or they would get a new owner and they'd be like, Oh, Scott knows how to do this. Bring him in. Ah. And so I would always, you know, I could never say no. Like I, I would have to always come back no matter what I was doing because the onions like my baby. And I, I feel like I understand it better than anyone else. Oh, yeah. And it, it was always really fun to be away from it and see the people that I had hired and trained, like doing amazing work without me. That was always incredibly gratifying. It just, you make me so proud. And there's nothing better than like picking up a copy of the onion in print you know, or looking at it online, mm-hmm. but the print is so much more magical to me and not having been a part of the brainstorming or anything for that week. And just laughing out loud at all these stories because it's like, <laughs> this is a humor publication that was literally tailor-made for my sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was a real treat and it still is, it still is a treat to go to the onion website and, and just read through it. And, uh, get all this amazing satire that I didn't have to do the work to write. And that's <laughs> such a great treat.
0: I get, yeah. I'd imagine it would feel a little different reading it, knowing what went behind it and then reading it just as a regular reader.
1: Totally. Yeah, totally. It's, uh, even, you know, even if you weren't there that week and you weren't behind that particular story, like just to know the inner workings of how difficult it is to how many bad stories you have to weed through, to find the real winners, you know, it's a lot of hard work. You know,
0: you bring up a great point. All the bad stuff you go through to get the good stuff, and you talk about that a lot on your podcasts and in your books. When did you? I do. When did you start writing? And because and, you, you've written several books on comedy writing, how to write jokes, writing characters. You've also written sci-fi. Was
1: <laughs> yes, I have.
0: When did the writing bug? kick in or were you doing that the entire time at the end? Because you, in the books you do do something that a, not a lot of comedians do and you kind of give a blueprint on how to do this stuff.
1: Yes. Well, because I, I I wanted to do that because I, I wanted a book like that when I was starting out and I couldn't find it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just wanted to spell out exactly how it's done. And it was it was difficult because I actually had to come up with terms for things that there weren't really terms for. There weren't names for some of this stuff. And and we would kind of throw around some of these names at the Onion office and I guess we kind of probably coined a few of them. But yeah, it was a really gratifying thing to do. That was when I left the Onion for the final time, 2014 when when I wrote that first book How to Write Funny and I put it out there. And it was surprising to me how popular it was. Like People really got a lot out of it, wanted to know the kind of secrets, you know, the the real professional way that humor is written. And so, yeah, it kept selling and kept selling and then led to all these sequels. Cause the first book was like how to write a joke. And then people were asking, well, how do you write an article? How do you do a sketch? And I was like, okay, I got to do a second book, you know? And then the third book is all about how to work within a team to, to create comedy. That's greater than the sum of the parts. And then I had to do a whole book on how to write funny characters because that was only touched on in the first book, but it's a really critical, important part of doing comedy is understanding character archetypes. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I, I had a, a really solid understanding of that from studying Sesame Street, rise and fall of Reginald Perrin, the rest of it. <laughs> Well, but nobody had ever written it down. Like Nobody had written down, like, what are the 40 most popular character archetypes that audiences love every time? And how do you make them original so that when you put out a new character, it doesn't feel like all the other old characters, but right. it still taps into those archetypes that people need, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's that has been a fun part of the journey that like being the sort of the comedy professor i um i loved training people when i was at the onion it was one of the funner parts of the job yeah and so now that i do those books and i do online classes and stuff that's uh, yeah that's that's a really fun part of my career that i i still get to do and there's not as much pressure now because you don't actually have to produce something every week Right. You just have- tell them what to do and uh guide them along and help them and it's very rewarding.
0: What I really liked about everything the, the stuff that I've I've read and listened to and, and try to absorb is that it's very selfless in the fact that a lot of podcasts, a lot of books that I've read about comedy and and, and the inner workings they're there's always those seem to be kind of guarded where they don't want to give away the secrets and what what I like about yours is that it comes with the attitude that there's room for everybody if you want to try to be funny do it here's here's how you can do it. It's not like giving you little bits here and there and you know saving like the eleven funny filters you know that's something that I've never seen before I've never seen anybody put that down and and give that out to to people who want to get into that, I don't want to say line of business, but maybe uh, get into writing or, or or just even just improve themselves at, a, at hanging out with their friends. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the goal was I just wanted to do a brain dump and, and spill the beans because it did seem like any other books about how to do comedy were either trying too hard to be funny, and I, I didn't want that. I just, I didn't want it to be funny at all. I just wanted to spell out how it's done in a very plain way. So I appreciate you saying that. That was kind of the goal. Yeah. Now you do several podcasts as well. I do two presently. And one of them comes out with an episode like every five years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that's the how to write funny podcast where I interview other comedians and comedy writers about how they do what they do. I've been doing that podcast for a long time, probably 10 years at this point. Oh, wow. And the other podcast I just started, I'm doing weekly and that's Scott Dickers around where I'm just trying to be funny and doing little skits and animation and, you know, trying out new jokes, basically what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. And that's, it's a video format and it's, it's kind of short for me. I mean, each of the episodes yeah. is the ones I've seen, are like, what at like 10, 15 minutes
1: on average, somewhere, like somewhere in that range. Yeah. Okay.
0: And the, how to write funny, it, I've gone back and started listening to those. That's really, really cool because it's not just one type. Like, for example, my podcast. I'd say 90% of my podcasts are are me talking to somebody who's creative and and trying to find out how you got to where you are. And and the the show is called Performance Anxiety, and that was the original idea, but that kind of went by the wayside in episode one. (laughs) So (laughs) we don't really touch on that at all. But... You'll talk with comedians, uh, similarly, you know, about their background, how they got into comedy. You know? But you also do shows. And the one, one of my favorites is The Three Fundamentals of Comedy Writing. That was uh, wonderful. I've, I used to do some comedy writing for a couple of friends of mine in L.A. Nothing Ever Went Anywhere. And um, Three Fundamentals of Comedy Writing was making me understand why. Hmm. And it's like um, The uh, Morning Pages. I am going to right. start doing that tomorrow because Oh, great. I may, it makes it makes me want to start writing comedy again.
1: Oh, that's uh that's wonderful of you to say. Thank you. Yeah, I I did a couple of episodes of the podcast where it was just me writing jokes live. So people could see like the real boring down in the weeds process, like how it works and what it feels like. And those, those episodes were really popular. So I'm definitely going to do more of those. And actually I working on this new podcast where I'm trying to be funny, I've started to do a Twitch stream where I write that show on video, like live and just talk it out like how I'm Trying to make a joke funny, or I'm trying to find the funny in a situation, and I'm I'm going to keep doing that because then it makes me accountable, and maybe it helps somebody out there who's like, wants to be funny or wants to write jokes. And yeah, you know, it never works how it works on TV, where <laughs> somebody sits down at a typewriter and types out a perfect joke, and here, boss, I got you, wrote the perfect joke. Yeah, you know, that's just not how it the Monty <laughs> works Python
0: skit, the funniest joke in the world, and everybody dies when they read it.
1: Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I love. That's like the best sketch ever. It's one of the best I've ever seen. It's spectacular.
0: It reminded me a lot of uh, I had a guest on not too long ago, Ben Vaughn. He's a guitarist. Did all the music for Third Rock from the Sun, that '70s show. Oh. And your segment on um, overcoming writer's block, it, it it mirrored exactly what he was saying because when he was writing for these sitcoms, he couldn't have writer's block, you know, right. he, he, he couldn't not write music that week because he'd get fired. So right. constantly writing, even if it's bad, the, that's, and that's why I, the morning pages really, really spoke to me. And, and the writing 10 ideas every day, it's just, it really inspired me. So I, I, I personally, I'm glad to hear it. thank you.
1: Well, I'm so glad to hear it, Mark. Yeah. I, one of the reasons why I'm doing this new podcast the Scott tickers around podcast is to do that for myself, to force myself to have a weekly deadline where I have to come up with at least 10 minutes of comedy material every week. Oh, that is awesome. And yeah, it really is a good exercise in just pure accountability. And sometimes I have to make a little skit. I have to animate it. I have to do a voice or an impression. And if it's somebody that I don't know how to do, like when Will Smith, uh, slapped Chris Rock. I didn't know how to do Will Smith, so I had to study his voice and figure it out and do it. You know, that's that's great. Like I yeah. love that kind of a, a challenge and to have to do that every week. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm tr- you know, I, I hope that if if nothing else, all this work I'm doing with these how to write funny books and the podcast and stuff is t- to inspire people to pursue their own comedy muse if they have one and kind of share the things that have helped me in my comedy. And one of the big ones is just that accountability, having a deadline where you have to produce something. Yeah. So doing 10 ideas a day, doing the morning pages every day, like that's something it's even better to have something that you have to finish and present to an audience. I, I like having it all. I like having them both.
0: I also really love the interviews that you've done on there in particular, the Ben Bailey episode and the weird owl episodes. Those were just amazing. Podcaster to podcaster, do you do a lot of prep or do you know these guys ahead of time and you're just kind of chatting with them?
1: I didn't know Weird Al ahead of time. He was in town for a comedy festival. and. So I called and he's been the biggest onion fan since the very beginning. He was a really early adopter who shared the onion with all these people. Oh, that's great. Uh, Really helped us out. And so I think he, he was happy to do it for that reason alone, but I'm just a student of comedy. And I of course have seen all his videos. I know all his work, so I didn't really have to do any research. (laughs) And then Ben Bailey, I cast Ben Bailey in a movie in around the year, 2001, and we became friends. Okay. And so when he went on later to become the host of cash cab and continue to build his stand-up career, you know, I had, I had followed it and I kind of, you know, knew everything about him. So I didn't have to do any research there either. Only occasionally do I get a chance to interview somebody who I don't really know much about. And then. Yeah, I definitely try to research who they are, but I'm such a comedy nerd. I usually know the people and I know their work. Like there's a few people who I would love to interview who I'm just an enormous fan of. Okay. And I've reached out to their people and haven't heard back. And I know there's like tricks for how you're supposed to get book big guests on your I podcast. You like and I, I just... <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Like, I would love to get David Spade on there. I'd love to talk to David Spade. Yeah. I think he only does like big, big shows with big audiences. I don't think he's going to do it, but he's like probably the most successful SNL cast member in terms of sheer volume of work and, um, the, the relative success of each of those. Also, he's never had like any major like psychic breakdown or drama. That's Uh, a good point. I I never thought about that. Yeah. So I'm just a huge fan of David Spade. And then somebody else I, I would love to get is Robert Klein. Like uh, what oh, a great, yeah. great comedian. And some of these comedians are getting pretty old. Like, you know, you miss your chance with them. And then like, I was so lucky to get Bob Einstein on the show before he died. Like that yeah. was a, I listened to that one too. I pure love Bob delight. Einstein. Yeah. Pure delight talking to him. He's one of the funniest people I've ever heard. Yep, and I was a huge Super Dave Osborne fan yes, back in the day. Me too. And Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, like, yeah, he's just like a legend, and he's so funny on Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. Oh, and yeah. So yeah, that was a treat.
0: And the one I'm I'm actually listening to right now is a Justine Bateman. I've just started that one, so I'm oh, just cool. getting into that. So yeah, yeah that, so that was interesting.
1: very fun to interview someone I had a crush on in high school. <laughs> <laughs> that so, was fun
0: or are there any episodes that kind of surprise you? Like I know the Ben Bailey one got kind of deep at, at certain points. Is it, are there any that that really surprised you uh, in what came out?
1: Yeah. Oftentimes they, they do surprise me because you never know where a conversation is going to go. So like talking to Christopher Titus was really surprising and just how, how deep into his psyche he gets in his comedy. And you know, anybody who knows his comedy may think that it's just sort of like shock value humor, but it really comes from a really deep and authentic place for him. And so that's really interesting. And then there's there's kind of the opposite example of somebody who's surprising. So like Ellie Kemper, mm-hmm. who the star of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, She is one of those rare comedy people who doesn't have a tortured past. You know, everything in her past is just lovely and (laughs) family got along. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me to talk to people like that. It's like, well, why are you doing comedy then? Like, what is it doing for you? (laughs) And people like that, they always say, oh, it's just fun. You know, I think it's fun. And like, uh, that's amazing. Like what, what a treat to, to have comedy be just sort of like, a fun pastime that you do because it's fun. (laughs) Who would have
0: figured comedy was fun?
1: Yeah. I don't know very (laughs) many people like that in comedy at all. Everyone I know in comedy is doing it because they have to. It's like a survival technique, you know? Yeah.
0: I hear that so often in either in listening to, uh, episodes of your podcast or other podcasts where I follow a certain comedian. I'm like, Oh, I want to hear this guy. And it's, or this lady. And it's just always, yeah, you know, I was abused or my parents divorced and there was always some kind of always something.
1: trauma. That- always something. And like Norm Macdonald is a guy I wanted on the podcast and I, I didn't get him. And of course you find out after he died that he was a guy who would do any podcasts who who asked him wow. he would do any podcast so but then how do you get a hold of him he doesn't return your calls it's like really hard yeah but <laughs> there's a guy like he's he's one of my favorite comedians of all time Mine too. and you know he had some really serious trauma like he had some serious sexual abuse as a child and he talks about it in his book, and it's just heart-wrenching, just absolutely heart-wrenching. But of course, he does it in a way that's funny and interesting. Like, he's never going to go dark. Like, he was the consummate showman. Right. You know? He was like a Mark Twain. Even though Mark Twain had some really dark thoughts toward the end of his life, he always kept it funny for the, for the audience, you know? Yes. Yeah. So it was always uh, subtextual, the darkness. It was never out in the open
0: what are you, what's going on with you now? What are you, what's day to day life like for you?
1: Well, right now I'm running my little uh, business, my funny university business where I teach people comedy and I do regular writer's room meetings with them, reviewing material in a group, which is really fun. Awesome. And I work on my new podcast every week. I spend about two days a week writing the jokes and shooting that. And And then my plan is to write more books now. I just got a new agent and I'm excited to be putting out more books that are humor books and also more of that science fiction you mentioned. Okay. I got a a few books in the pipeline that that I got in me that I got to get out that are like um, sci-fi, satire type of things. Pretty excited about that. Oh, that's great. So yeah, I moved about a year ago from Chicago to Minneapolis of all the crazy places. And my goal was to just hunker down and just write and work and really not ever leave my house. So, (laughs) so far it's going pretty well. All right. But I realized I went through like one of these midlife crises where I was like, ah, I work too much. You know, I should spend more time with people. And then I was like, why? No, I prefer the work. (laughs) Like, I'm just, I want to work more. (laughs) So I'm going to be one of those guys on my deathbed, you know, oh, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Yeah. Uh, and why do I have to spend so much time with these goddamn people? <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that period.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, so you've got books coming up, more podcasts. How can people follow you and learn and, and get the books and, and, uh, watch the uh, video podcast and keep an eye on, on what you're doing.
1: Thank you for asking. I'm pretty easy to find in the computer. Even if you spell my name wrong, <laughs> you just Google me and you'll find my books, you'll find my podcast, you'll find my social media. And I'm pretty, you know, I, I, I spent my career building the onions social media platform, not my own. So <laughs> I'm pretty approachable. Like you send me a DM, I'll probably respond, you know, so pretty easy to find in the computer. And I like it that way, you know?
0: Oh, that's excellent. And, and people can sign up for for the, uh, the how to write funny stuff and, and
1: yeah, there's a lot of free resources on the how to write funny website, but if they want to go deeper with me, they got the books they can get, they can take a course with me and, um, yeah, there's a lot of different, different ways, uh, to take what's in my brain and put it into your brain for, for your comedy benefit.
0: That's excellent. And there's no age limit on that. So no, that's what I love. That's one of the things I love about comedy. It's there's no, there's no age limit to being funny, to writing funny, to nope. producing funny. It's true. Well, Scott, thank you for I've kept you for almost an hour and I thank you. I really do appreciate all the time and your generosity with everything. And the generosity for all the information you give out in your books and your podcasts. It's it's just oh, an
1: amazing store of knowledge. Well, it's my pleasure and thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, I it. Absolutely my pleasure.